Hello and welcome to Gatecrasher with me, Anna Peters. I'm a super planner and it's my job to create standout events. In this podcast, we get a backstage pass to some of the most iconic events as I chat to those working behind the scenes about what it takes to pull off a world-class event. Today, we gatecrash the largest annual fundraising event in the world, the London Marathon, a massive event that requires huge logistic and organisational skills, skills that have been put to the test in the last few years as their plans have had to change to running the race both in person and virtually. And the person who's led the team is Hugh Brazier, the race director. The way I'm wired, and everyone's wired differently, is is to think of the worst-case scenario, but not think about it for too long, but just understand what it is, and then look to the best-case scenario. I actually believe the more positive you are, the more positive things happen around you. Before we start, I feel I should come clean and admit I'm not the most sporty of people. In fact, my PE teacher at school described me as the most lethargic child that ever taught. But once a year, albeit from the comfort of my sofa, I spend a few glorious hours imagining what it'd be like to run the London Marathon. So what is it about this iconic event that inspires us, even those of us who aren't runners, and makes us want to sign up or support those running, either by cheering them on or donating to charity. I asked Hugh Brazier about how events can create emotional connections and bring people together, as well as how to inspire your team to keep going. But first, I asked him about the evolution of London Marathon to a new hybrid format. You have to go back to 2020 and where the world was learning COVID and learning to pretty well change everything that we'd known for the previous, in in my instance, over 50 years of existence. And, uh, you know, the world was changing so rapidly, whatever you, or certainly whatever I predicted would happen, didn't happen. I sort of pride myself on my ability to read data and predict things. And I pretty well predicted things wrong 100 days consecutively. We had... I think it was whatever A to J is in the alphabet, J was the last scenario that we had, um, that we were playing with. It never got more than J. Quite a few of them went out and more came in. Um, But over the sort of period of um, March, uh, I think lockdown happened March the 23rd, I think it was, pretty well with eight weeks to go, we had to put together the 2020 marathon knowing then that it couldn't happen in person. Um, for the mass, we could put the elite event on, um, and we could do that by basically sealing off St. James's Park, hiring charter planes from Kenya and Ethiopia to fly the elite athletes in from those locations, testing everyone before they left those locations, testing them daily in a hotel that we commandeered the whole grounds to. Uh, so we took over a whole hotel and, and had some pretty strict protocols for, for, for not only for testing, but also tracking where everybody was in the hotel compared to each other. Some pretty good technology. We then engendered the, the virtual London Marathon and uh, we used some recordings that we had made from 2017 we used that crowd noise we got paula radcliffe and steve cram to do some some audio commentary we sent out everyone their running number and through the app uh we quite incredibly managed to get uh nearly 37,000 people 
to run the London Marathon on that same day as the elite athletes were. And the BBC brilliantly filmed runners from around the world doing it on that day. We had eight hours of 20 minutes of BBC TV coverage. Um, so Gabby Logan was doing the most incredible job uh, to, to, to keep people entertained. Uh, and incredibly, that, uh, that broadcast was up for a BAFTA. And yes, I think it, it has been really interesting to where it's taken the organization and taken the event. It's become more inclusive. You can do the London Marathon wherever you are in the world. You don't have to travel to London, which, you know, the, a marathon is 26.2 miles. And that crowd, that interactive noise and the commentary and, un, and, and experiencing the course, I think really created some, some, something that was interesting and unique. And so hence the hybrid event was born in 2020. And in 2021, we had the biggest in-person event in the world. So nearly 36,000 people finished on the 2021 Virgin Money London Marathon and 24,000 people did it virtually at the same time. So that was a total of 59,000, nearly 60,000 people then did that event, which made it the largest marathon in the world in the history of the planet. I mean, that's one of the joys, I suppose, for you of virtual is that it has widened out who can enter the marathon. What other kind of benefits has it been? Is it that kind of diversification of who can run that's been really appealing? Yes, Previously, you had to travel to London. Previously, we were constrained by the course from Greenwich to Westminster, the course of the, the times that we have the road closures for. If someone you know, couldn't compete, complete the event in pretty well eight hours, then the experience they got wasn't brilliant. The roads were reopening around them. This actually meant people could do it in a way, in their own way. And I think that's what society is becoming, which is we want to be together, but we also want to be treated as an individual and we want to be able to do things in our own way. You know, for some people, they don't want to be in crowds. That would be a terrible thing for them to be surrounded by so many people. So they would prefer to do it on their own, from their home, in their community. Um, the fact that you get sent your running number front and back, you get sent a finish tape, which, by the way, was made of, um, I think it was rice paper and, and, and seeds, so you could then plant the finish tape and flowers would grow. It makes the event more inclusive. And, you know, we're still learning about it. It's a, it's a journey that we're on. What everyone's learned is to be more adaptive from the last two years and to be you know, more aware that actually we can cope with a huge amount. It might not be brilliant for our mental health, the amount that we've had to cope with, but um, by really great communication, by talking and by being open to change, it's incredible what the human human beings can do and achieve. Mm, I, mean, I mean, you mentioned there about sort of changing and needing to be flexible quickly. Uh, you pulled off something incredible by merging this hybrid approach and you had to do it very quickly. Did you have doubts along the way about whether you were going to be able to pull it off? And if so, how did you hold your nerve given it was done in a very compressed time frame? I didn't really have doubts. The way I'm wired and everyone's wired differently is, is to think of the worst case scenario, but not think about it for too long, but just understand what it is and then look to the best case scenario. You know, there's a thing called the theory of attraction. A lot of people have debunked. Personally, I actually believe the more positive you are, the more positive um, things happen around you, the more that you look towards the positive. And, and in sport, which is 
where I come from with my parents, their background. You know, for anyone who skis, for example, and if you ski in trees, if you look at the tree, which is the danger, you'll hit the tree. If you look in between the trees at where the gap is, you go in between the trees. If you're Lewis Hamilton, you're on a racetrack, you don't look at the corner, you look where you want to go, which is through the corner. So you look to success and you stay positive and you create this environment, I believe. And so I didn't have doubts because we just also had so many different plans. And I think that the hardest bit, though, is, is taking people on that journey with you. They have doubts. And there are so many people I've spoken to who said, oh, I didn't think you'd pull it off. I didn't think you'd do this. Um, and like you're saying, it's how do you stay positive? Well, I just think that is a state of mind. I don't know why I have it, whether it became from my parents and, and, and you know, that's the whole nature nurture bit. And where is it? Is it a bit of both? Um, probably. So I stayed positive. The team stayed positive. I believed in their ability to deliver it. And they did. And it was a mixture of brilliant communication. You know, the team working with the BBC, how brilliant that they were in the process. TCSR technology partner doing a brilliant job with the with the app. Um, people having some, you know, long nights, but they did an amazing job. And I think they were really proud of what they achieved. Yeah. And so they should be. So they should be. I mean, you're talking about looking forward. I'd like to just go a little bit behind the scenes, if I may, because I'm really interested in how you approach an event of this scale. And normally an event, you might start with the venue. Now, of course, for you, that's London. London is your venue. What are the challenges of managing an event across a whole city? They must be a number of challenges, Hugh. Where do you start with that? The biggest challenge is, is the major stakeholders and that you you have so, so many of them. So people in a, you know, you, you have the field of play. So if you, if you are in a stadium, it is con- constrained by the stadium. Ours happens to be 26.2 miles, or in the case of Ride London Essex, 100 miles. So it really is just trying to break the field of play into different venues, into the route, into a start, into a finish, um, have different teams on different elements of it. And then those teams are working together under one uh, overarching goal, um, one overarching leader who is bringing it together. And, and, and it's really about being clear as what your goals are at the start, what your objectives are, give them the responsibility, keep them on track, though, for the bigger picture, but just get them to focus on their bit. And if their bit's delivered brilliantly and you've got 15 different bits and they're all individually being delivered brilliantly, as long as they understand the overall objective, you can deliver it and you break it down in in that way. That's the way I do it. I'm sure there are lots of other ways of doing it. You know, we do look an awfully long way ahead. There is an event that we hope to announce as part of the London Marathon this year that's four and a half years since we started the first conversation on it. So we really are working a long way ahead. And a lot of what I'm working on is two or three years ahead rather than this year's event. This year's event's being delivered. The team are delivering it. I'm thinking about 23 and 24 and 25. The thing I suppose also that I was interested in is how you manage the flow of the event. You've got a huge number of people there. You've got the runners You've got a massive crowd who almost in a way, they're kind of having an event within an event, aren't they? There's a little bit of a street party vibe going on within the marathon. 
And then you've got the people running at the back who need to be supported. How do you work out what you need to have at which point during the race? You know, if you take the back of the pack, there was a team whose job it was to do an amazing job and and deliver an amazing job for the back of the pack experience. There's a little project team who fit into the program, the overall program being the London Marathon, but there's a project team to to make the back of the pack experience brilliant. So that's what their focus is. In terms of communication to runners, there is a team whose job it is to look at the participant experience. There is an event safety team who are looking at not only the safety of the crowd and the movement of the crowd, but the safety of the runners and the medics So it is this bit about how you break the overall program, which is the London Marathon, down into these projects and people are responsible for delivering their part of the project. And they understand what it is and they understand the bigger picture of 50,000 people, as you say, moving from A to B over 26.2 miles. But we have some brilliant technology that we use, crowd modeling, that shows how the flow of people will work. We know exactly, you know, the width of our field of play, the course, the barriers, what goes on. And you can model how the course changes through changing the start procedure. The start is so critical in the London Marathon, getting that procedure right. With COVID in 2021, we had a start procedure that was over I think it was close to two hours. I'd have to go back and check. Because they were um, all staggered. Is that right? And they, they were staggered yeah. and people were, were, were going and, and, and it was very, very complicated. But we practiced it at five events before the London Marathon. The big half, so that was a half marathon that took place in, in August. We practiced it there. We practiced it at the Standard Charter Great City Race in July. We practiced it at the Vitality Hatfield 10K that was June. We practiced it as part of the events research program that we put on for the government. And we did that in in May. So each event, actually, the first one was about 1,900 runners. The last one of those was about 10,000 runners. Before we got to the marathon, that was 35,000 runners. So each time you practiced it, you played with it, you tweaked it. We very rarely, if we can, we never do anything at the London Marathon that has never been tested before, but we test it in smaller events that we run to have the faith that it's going to work. And and if you've done the maths right and you've practiced it right, it's just an amplification. It's just an, an, another naught on the end. You're listening to Gatecrasher as we go behind the scenes of the London Marathon with race director Hugh Brazier. If you'd like to hear more Gatecrasher stories, we'll be continuing the conversation over on Instagram or Twitter, where you'll find me at Evolve Events. I'd love to hear what event you'd like to Gatecrash and why, so do get in touch. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. It really does help other people find us. Now, back to the main event as Hugh shares some of the challenges that London Marathon and other mass participation events face at the moment. So practice and preparation is key and clear communication, I'm also hearing, is key to the success. Obviously, running a marathon isn't in reality a solo experience. You've got a whole team behind you. To manage that kind of thing, I presume you need a kind of an army of volunteers In events and hospitality at the moment, recruitment is a real problem. And I wonder if that's a problem 
with volunteers at mass participation events, has that changed in the last couple of years or is there a real appetite for people to come back and support? Are you seeing any drops in numbers there? It's different for each event. So I think what what is incredible about the London Marathon is that it's it's sort of become part of the national psyche in in 40 years. And I sort of quite often say you've got the crown jewels of of sport is the boat race, Wimbledon finals, the Grand National, the FA Cup final, and the London Marathon. Well, all the other ones are more than 150 years old, and we're 40 years old. People love it so much. That's also how we were able to get the date moved. And generally, volunteers, because they love being part, as you said, of this amazing street party. It is one of the biggest street parties in the world, where 50,000 people happen to be running 26.2 miles in the middle of it. We had 73 pubs on the route, 43 different live bands on the route. All of these things are going on um, before you get into sponsor activation and and screens, etc. So I think that we've been quite fortunate from that point of view. But do we believe it is one of the, is it a real issue for our industry? Yes. And I think that what we have to do is look wider to engage younger volunteers, look from a different demographic, look from different communities and, and, and really look differently because yeah, the world's changed and it's, it's harder to, you know, you've got to look after people better than, than, than I believe than, than we had before. And that's something that we again are looking to do. I think because you say the way you engage with people and the way people take it to their heart in a way, you know, you think about something like London Marathon, enormous amount of road closures, people on the tube and so on. It could almost, I suppose, be an inconvenience. But in fact, it's a source of pride, isn't it, to Londoners that it's hosted in their city. And I know people who live on the route are particularly delighted to be part of it. How do you work with them to engage them and make sure that it is a source of joy, not inconvenience? Yeah, look, it's, it's a good question. And I think it's it, it, it is incredible that we are in that position because, you know, are we shutting roads? Yes. But do people actually embrace it and want to get involved? And, you know, the number of people said, oh, I used to lived in Greenwich or I lived in Blackheath. It was my favourite day of the year. I'd come out, watch. I think it's, it's what is unique is, is that it's the human endeavour and the, the connection that actually everyday people are doing something quite incredible in, in running 26.2 miles. These are not people who look any different to you and I. They are a broad section of society, different shapes, different ages, different demographics, different abilities, different disabilities, all coming together with that single purpose of getting from Greenwich to Westminster and doing something positive because 75% of them are raising money for charity. You know, we're the world's largest one-day charity fundraising event. More than £65 million, I think it was £64 million, 64.8 was raised in 2019. We're not yet back at that figure. We hope to be in 2022. It's one of those days of the year where there's such a positive community spirit. It just changes people's viewpoint. And in society, we do often look at things very negatively. We often think about the bad things but then we get you know you go and watch the marathon you see someone struggling um to put one step in front of another but they're doing it for whatever you know is it to to remember 
their father, their mother, their sister, their brother, their best friend who something happened to them? Um, is it for them in terms of their mental health? Is it, you know, bottom line is there will be thousands of people on an individual level that each one of us can relate to. And that's that's something that has been created by the team over the 40 years. That's not what I created. That's what my father and John Disley, when they founded the marathon, you know, do I think they realized quite what they were creating at the time? No, I don't. But it is uh, a joyous occasion. It really does. They, they had some founding pillars, and one of them was to show that on occasions, um, the family of humankind can come together in joyous celebration. And we so need those. And, and it was a, talking about in a troubled world. And we have a troubled world. And this is a day of celebration. It is a day where people are coming together and that's what creates this amazing vibe that that goes out far beyond the 50,000 people or the three quarters of a million that are watching them. It just seems to encapsulate the nation. Yeah, I mean, you talk about that value. I suppose it was um, a precede into the idea of we run together at a time when things are increasingly more polarised. How can mass participation sporting events and should mass participation sporting events have a role in bringing people together? You're saying that that's one of the things that you think that the marathon did from the beginning. I know there's that iconic image, isn't there, from the first marathon of the two runners hand in hand, and you've taken that spirit through, haven't you, ever since? Yes. Yeah, so, so do I think the mass participation sport plays a, can play an important part in that? 100% yes. With the right values, as long as the sport or the activity has the right values, and that values need to be togetherness. That's one of the values of London Marathon is together. Another value is fun. It's inspiration. Uh, so these are the values that we have as an organization. You know, lots of organizations have values, but they don't live them. They don't really mean them. And we do. We talk about them so often. There's a hugely important part that other events can do but there's a lot more that we need to do. You know, the reality is, is, is that at the moment, mass participation sports events generally are too white and too middle class. Are they genuinely accessible to all? And we don't believe that they are. So we have a huge, you know, huge part of what we're doing is to, to try and change that. Now, London is the most amazing city with amazing cultural differences. And we should be celebrating that even more than we do. It should be actually running that 26.2 miles should be a journey through London's culture, through London's history, through London's communities. And it should be an all consuming experience so not you're not passing through you're immersed in it so people talk about immersive experiences and that actually there should be the most incredible immersive experience of the culture the differences of london and that's what we're trying to create much more than we have at the moment and if we do create that it's going to be even more incredible and that's 
pretty amazing thing to say. Mm, it's hard to think, isn't it, that it could be even more of an emotional experience to participate and watch, but um, I'm sure it could be. And it should be, as you say, an advocacy of how wonderful the diversity of London is. And as we start to see live events returning, things like the carnival coming back to London, hopefully we'll see more of that driving forward. A lot of the marathon, I suppose, is about goals, isn't it, Hugh? People talk about what time they're going to compete in, how much they're going to raise for the charity. You've got the elite athletes um, competing. For you, what do you measure the success of the marathon, Lass? There's lots of different metrics. One of them is the participant experience. We do a survey of participants after it. And what was incredible with all the changes that the team had to to develop for the event to take place. 98.37% of the respondents to the survey, which was 10,000 people who had run the marathon, rated it good or excellent. And that's the highest ever rating that we've ever had. Now, it's incredible. So, so it's either good, excellent, requires improvement or poor. Those are the four. We keep it quite simple. So we measure that every year. The ROI, the return of investment that those sponsors have had. Uh, we measure it with our partnership of the BBC on the demographics, the audience, uh, how long people have watched it for, the age group, the gender split. So, you know, I'm a bit of a data geek. Um, and, and we get loads of bits of data in. And so you're looking at the debrief from the stakeholders, um, you know, be it the rural parks, be it the, the boroughs, be it the private land landowners, because we have uh, planning meetings. And so we get we get this debrief back and at the, you know, the charity fundraising, how much money did they raise? All of these different um, elements come in and that determines the success of the event. And, and, you know, to truly know what the success is, it probably takes six weeks after the event. We've got a pretty good idea on after the day of the event or on the day of the event. Things do pop up that get you get quite surprised about and think, oh, goodness me, we really could have done better. And every year we could do things that are better. It's not that, you know, things happen that are unexpected, but we're pretty good at reacting to them and trying to, we know, we really try and give the most amazing experience. I imagine that one of the metrics that you're going to be measuring more in the future will be sustainability. As we come back, there is a real drive, isn't there, to build back greener. What are you doing at London Marathon to look at how you can make your event more sustainable going forward? Yeah, look, we've done a huge amount. And, and if you go to our website, there is a sustainability report that breaks down all the data of, of um, CO2 emissions. We're looking at stage one, two and three. Uh, you know, we're looking at waste. We're looking at, you know, reduction. So as an example, this year in the big half, that's the half marathon that's taking place in September, we are testing where the participant chooses whether they want a t-shirt or a medal. Because some people won't want to finish a t-shirt, some people won't want to finish a medal. The number one thing to do on sustainability is reduce, stop producing stuff. You know, if 10,000 people are going to throw away that medal, the fact that we haven't produced it in the first place. So for, and, and people might go, well, that's really easy to do. 
It's actually not when you start thinking of how many people are crossing the finish line and then you've got to work out, did they want a medal? They probably haven't got the brain space to to know what on earth they said. What they want at that time. What they want at that time. <laughs> not a clue. There is a huge amount. Um, we've got a head of sustainability who's doing a great job. There's a sustainability team and we've got some uh, really, I believe, far-reaching goals. Uh, you know, we've got some really tough targets to meet and we will meet them. Yeah, it's hugely important. I just was thinking over the years about some of the most inspirational stories that you must have been moved by, especially in the last few years, which has been a particular challenge, what you've learnt yourself about the art of what's possible that maybe you could share to inspire other people, especially people within the event planning world. I just think the art of what is possible is what you is what you can imagine and, and what you believe in. It's it is down to you. It is it is. My father was the pacemaker to Roger Bannister in the first sub four minute mile. That was considered to be humanly impossible, physiologically impossible for a human being to run under four minutes for a mile. And Roger Bannister did it. It had been tried for nine years. So I've grown up. Nothing is impossible and you know, I was I and the team were part of Elliot Kipchoge's um, INEOS challenge the INEOS 159 challenge and it was also said to be impossible for someone to run under two hours for a marathon you know lots of people say things are impossible and I just try and go well try and think about it doing it differently or uh, and stay positive doing it so my number you know, and some people might go, that's ridiculous, things are going to be impossible. But I think uh, that's just a, a personal belief and I stay positive doing it. So uh, that's what I would say to people, do go around it. That absolutely, approach it from a different angle, definitely. Don't, don't bash your head against a brick wall. You're not going to go through it. Go around the wall. There will be a gate. There'll be a different way of doing it. Get a ladder to go over it or learn to pole vault. There will be different ways of doing it that absolutely, can you go through a brick wall? No, you can't, right? But you can dig under it. You can pole vault over it. You can go around it. There's lots of things, hot air balloon. It doesn't matter. There's lots of different ways of doing it. As you mentioned, Hugh, London Marathon is part of British sporting and cultural heritage. I've grown up with it. Lots of people have grown up with it. You've lived it. You know, your father was a co-founder of it. We all kind of think we know it. But I wonder if you have any facts that you could share with us that might surprise people. I still think the fact that one billion pounds has been raised for good causes, a billion pounds, is just quite incredible. That over a million people have finished the London Marathon. That in the first London Marathon... I think it was less than 300 women out of the 6,300 finishers. Less than 5% were women, and, and it's pretty well parity now. Before you go, Hugh, I've got one more question that I'd love to know. And um, The podcast is called Gatecrasher, and if you could gatecrash any event in the world, could be now or historic, what that might be and why. I've got the first London Marathon in 1981. I want to, uh, you know, I've seen pictures of it. I was 15. I worked at the event um, selling train tickets. But actually, no idea. I mean, I was at school and I've no idea what my dad was really doing. I mean, he was doing something, obviously. And it wasn't until I saw the newspaper then on the, the day at the Daily Mail. And you've got Dick Beardsley, as you mentioned, and Inga Simonson hand in hand on the front of the national newspaper. 
Um, and I'm suddenly going, oh, that probably was quite important. So I'd be quite, I'd love to know just the madness of what it was. I've heard stories, uh, my dad loved to challenge and he had to, um, he had to get permission from, he got permission from Sir Horace Cutler, who was the head of the GLA, to get the police and everything. And, and one of the things that they did, they took uh, people out to New York to see the New York Marathon. And I think they had to do it very quickly. And I believe that they did it on Concord. And so my dad decided he wanted to be the first person to run a mile in under four seconds. So when Concord was, he'd talked to the, got to the pilot and the, when, when, when it was at Mark 2.2, whatever it was, I think Concord flew at, he was going to run down the plane and be the first person. Uh, but my dad also quite liked to drink. I think he drunk too much and was fast asleep at the point that he should have done the sub four minute mark. Anyway, now we digress. The other one is Live Aid. I just think that what they did in the time that they did it, you know, I remember watching Live Aid and, and I just remember Queen's performance and it just lit the room up. It, it had been a little bit of a, well, meh, up until that point and what Freddie Mercury and they did. And then it followed with you 2 were pretty well coming on after and it just took off. I think to have been part of that organization team, to be doing that globally around the world, what they did for the charity part, I think was incredible. So those would be the two events for me. Mm, no, great choices. And I think as well, the um, Live Aid, it shows you that, of course, being at an event is incredible, but actually watching an event also has the power to transform and very much, I suppose that's the same with London Marathon, isn't it? Yes, you've got your elite runners, you've got everybody else running, you've got the crowd, but it also lights up and inspires people at home just as much. So thank you, Hugh, for coming on, sharing your stories, inspiring us. I'm really looking forward to October. I bet you cannot wait to have the streets full of people, but also welcome back people all over the world coming back for the first time for a few years, isn't it? So I'm sure it's going to be an absolutely inspirational event. It will be, and thank you. Such an inspiring conversation. There's so much that I loved about what Hugh had to say. First, about the power of positive thinking. Surely Hugh's belief that nothing is impossible is the mantra everyone in events must work to if they're going to make the seemingly impossible possible. Preparation and practice. Preparation and practice. Investing time up front in the planning process is never time wasted. What might that involve? Well, start with a good brief and getting clear on your goals. A well-thought-out event sheet is key, capturing all the tiny details so every supplier is working off one document, but also mapping out the event at the venue, breaking it down element by element, rehearsing it so you can evaluate the flow and ensure that everybody knows what's meant to happen and when. Plan for all scenarios and trust your team to deliver. As Hugh explained, nothing goes live for the first time at London Marathon. Every change or development has been tested and practised at other, much smaller events before. Live events are challenging, so you need to be agile and creative in your thinking. In Hugh's words, find a way to go round that hurdle. At London Marathon, it's the crowd that lists the runners. At our events, we use music or entertainment to provide the energy and set the tone. Never underestimate the power of a good DJ to create the right atmosphere and to add the energy to an event. And most importantly, I think, is to put your audience at the very heart of everything you do. 
Treat your guests as individuals whilst not losing focus of the bigger picture and you'll ensure your event, whatever its scale, is just as joyous as the London Marathon. As Hugh says, we all have to start somewhere and this podcast is, I hope, the beginning of an exciting new project sharing the stories behind great events with you so you take something away you can use in the planning of your next event, however big or small. Thanks so much for listening. I've got more brilliant guests coming up in the series, so to make sure you don't miss a single episode, click on the subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you listen on. And if you've enjoyed this episode, then please leave me a review. It would be so appreciated as it really does help other people find the podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.